those rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> hey everyone, this is Maureen. I am recording the Vegan Vanguard podcast alone this week. Uh, Mexi is not here, and though I will miss her dearly, I think that you'll really enjoy this interview with Rama. So Rama gave a talk at the Vegans of Color conference in Vechvaz, Dublin, which I also gave a talk at, uh, well, the Vechvaz, Dublin part, not the Vegans of Color conference part of it, obviously. Um, but... Anyway, this, this entire conference was so wonderful. I'm going to include a link to the streaming of the entire conference down below. Um, but anyway, this conference is where I first heard about Rama's work. Uh, her talk was called The Vegan Washing of Hinduism. And I thought that the information was so fascinating and very underreported in the vegan community. So I asked her to join me on the show, which she has kindly agreed to do. So yes, that will be today's episode. So Rama gave the presentation in Dublin with slides, which she's uploaded to a link that you can find in the description box of this episode. Uh, if you're listening to this in the car or on a walk or <laughs> for a multitude of other reasons, you don't have access to a computer, don't worry because all the information will still make sense to you if you just listen to the audio. However, if you can look at the slides, I do recommend it. There are some instructive maps and images and even tweets that Rama has included in there. In this presentation, Rama is going to tackle a lot, um, and I'll let her introduce the presentation in greater depth in a moment. Um, but amongst other things, she is going to demystify the myth that Indian culture and even Hinduism advocates for vegetarianism. She's going to explain why that myth has long been propagated by both Westerners and Indians, particularly those of upper castes or those belonging to upper castes. Most vegans will also probably know about India's beef ban, which was passed in 2015, since it was very widely celebrated in the vegan community. However, Rama is going to explain to us why it's very dangerous and counterproductive for vegans to associate themselves with the ban and push such a positive image of the ban. Uh, she also is going to talk about the use of the word ahimsa in the vegan community and explain why it's problematic in even way more ways than I was aware of. So before we get into the video, here is a short bio um, of Rama herself. Rama lived in Chennai, India until the age of 10 when she emigrated to the UK with her family. She then moved to the US in her 20s with her spouse and she has lived there ever since. She has two grown children and a dog and two cat companions at home. She graduated from the University of Oxford and then got a PhD from the University of Wales, both in an area of psychology that involved a decade or so of animal experimentation. She also got a business degree later on and spent another decade working in and teaching in the area of marketing. Rama became a vegan about six years ago after reading Eating Animals by Jonathan Saffron Foer, which was set as college reading for her son. Then she began to work to promote veganism, and she worked as an educator where she presented to thousands of students on the topic of compassionate eating choices. She runs Vegan Michiana, a local organization that promotes veganism in the South Bend, Indiana region. You can also find many of her articles at medium.com. Anyway, all of that will be in the show notes. So one very last thing before we get into the episode, I wanted to shout out our patrons, which I'm weirdly excited to do because Maxi is the only one who has ever done this up until this point. So introducing this week's particularly amazing patrons, um, I'd like to give, I mean, we would both like to give a warm thank you to Zebr, uh, Z-E-B-R. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Actually, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce any of these correctly. Leono, Maestrix Andrade Soltero, Diego Casanova, and Aaron Rosenfeld. No, Aaron Rosenfeld. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, thank you so, so much for your support. We really, really appreciate it. And if you would like to support the show, you can donate to us on Patreon. 
Um, you can also throw us a one-time donation via our website, theveganvanguard.com. <laughs> Maxi, did I do that right? I feel like this is the way that you always say it. Almost. Uh, hey, everyone. It's Mexi just jumping in post-editing to say that our website is actually veganvanguardpodcast.com. Veganvanguardpodcast.com. But that was so close. It was really, really close. Might as well be might as well be the same thing, except that it's not. So everyone, please go to the correct website to donate to support the show. And thank you. And on with the show. Um, and you can, of course, share the episode on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or all of those fun social media platforms. Um, yeah, and you can also just write us a, a message and you can write us an email or a comment. I, we always love reading those. Oh, and of course, an iTunes review. What kind of podcaster would I be if I didn't mention the iTunes review? That tremendously helps us out and helps people find the show. So, yeah, anyway, let's get into the episode. So, Rama, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, good morning or good evening where you are. How are you, Marine? I'm very well. I'm very well. I'm excited to have this conversation with yeah. you. I'm, I'm glad to have this opportunity. Thank you. I hope these kinds of issues get further discussed and there's more um, knowledge about these things in the, the vegan community. Me as well. I remember just having my mind blown from your talk because I always knew of like the cultural appropriation that goes on around Hinduism and the term ahimsa in the vegan community. Like it's, you know, I think when you know about cultural appropriation, you can tell it's a little bit like icky what's going on, mm -hmm. but I, I didn't realize the depth of um, why it was really problematic to associate veganism so closely with some of these ideas. So mm -hmm. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, um, uh, you know, you can't tell people what to, you can't, uh, you know, say you should do this, or you shouldn't do this, but you can let people know what the situation is. And hopefully they will understand that some of these things are, in fact, problematic. So that's what mm -hmm. I hope to do, just get people to understand. Mm hmm. So uh, my presentation, um, originally we called it Veganism and Hinduism, the Disconnections. And then later on, I began to think, you know, really, we should call it the vegan washing of Hinduism, vegan washing. Mm. Um, when I came up with it, I didn't know that was a term, but that is exactly what we're talking about, vegan washing. And the fir um, first things I'm going to say is what are the takeaways from what I'm going to say? Mm -hmm. you, you probably know people called calling vegans who call themselves ahimsa they refer to ahimsa they share memes on ahimsa in fact if i checked on facebook i probably have 50 friends who, whose name is ahimsa um and what is what is wrong with that well you know um things like ahimsa they're all coming out of the orientalist vision of india uh, this the orientalist vision started in about uh, the 19th century that people of european people in europe began to uh, come up with a story on what India is all about, and the story involved how India is spiritual and certain kind of spiritual superiority, it's mystical, and uh, so forth and so on. And and that is actually a Euro, Euro, European story, and and so it isn't really what India really is. It's it's actually a white people's story. Um, and so who's you know the colon and then the colonial colonialists, the British uh, uh, conquest also uh, fed into this whole thing. Now. When I, when I start to understand that, yeah, in fact, it is like it is being appropriated. But then who is uh, responsible for perpetuating this idea of India? Well, it is, in fact, uh, people like me who are um, people who have the resources to control the narrative of what the outside world thinks about India. There are certain people with certain privileges. There are upper caste people, as you're the privileged vegan, right? There are certain people with privileges, the, uh, the upper caste people who um, are able to, in fact, speak with people of other countries, in fact, go to the other countries. And it's all a kind of impression management. Mm. This is what we, yeah, we like the fact that you think we are spiritual and we're superior for that reason and mystical and ahimsa, perhaps. Um, and, and so we don't, 
we kind of like it. We want we want to keep that idea, and and um, I'll I'll touch a bit more on that later. Um, so yeah, the colonialists and and the Europeans were responsible for Orientalism, but also it's been perpetuated by some of the upper caste and people with with resources. Mm. Okay, so in India there is a beef ban, and I know that uh, this in, in several states, not all of India, and uh, vegans in America have been really excited about the beef ban. Well, it is not what you think it is. So um, I really want to talk a little bit about the beef ban. Um, and it's, it's, it's not something to be celebrated. It is not uh, really a vegan success at all. Um, so what are the implications? What, what do I really want you to do? Well, do not valorize, valorize or otherwise put value upon Indian vegetarianism, Hinduism, Ahimsa, or even Buddhism and Jainism, which are not Hinduism, but they're close, you know, somewhat related. They count, came out of Hinduism. Mm. Um, don't valorize Gandhian principles. Um, lots of people, uh, a lot of leaders of the vegan movement um, use Mahatma Gandhi as an example, and we'll talk about some of that later. Um, I, and, I, and really, we should not be using Gandhi as an example. Gandhi was a casteist. So um, there are people in India we are going to alienate if we insist uh, that Gandhi is the, vegan, the leader of the vegan movement or one of our uh, uh, examples. And if you really want to represent people of Indian descent, please attempt to include lower caste and people from the Dalit, Adivasi and Muslim communities. And I'm going to explain what those terms mean. Now, I think what is happening here in the USA is people don't want veganism to be white. Okay, They don't want animal rights to be too white. So they're looking for people of color. Okay, Great. And that's what they totally should be doing. And then they look for people of color and what is easy to find. Well, people like me are relatively easy to find. I um, I am an upper caste um, Hindu, uh, relatively privileged. Um, in fact, Indian um, Americans, Indian immigrants in the USA make t uh, in household income is twice as much as the white. Really? Man. Twice as much. <laughs> so in that sense, how are we? I mean, we're not economically marginalized for one. So anyway, the point I want to make is, of course, you should be getting views from a variety of people. But just from getting um, uh, Indian Americans, you're not really getting the voice of the marginalized people that you might be looking for. Um, and, and so and I would say uh, most of the um, Indian Americans um, are, in fact, privileged um, to come here. We would need to, you know, to get a visa. You're, you need to be doing a um, advanced degree, you know, a graduate degree. Um, but not everybody. And there are some others um, that we can, in fact, um, include in our panels. And that's what people I mean, if you, that's what people are looking for. If you see another panel that is only going to include upper caste Indians, that's really going to uh, alienate some people. So moving on, I'm going to uh, talk a little bit about brief history of India. And this is the consensus from um, historians um, in India, um, uh, you know, knowledgeable historians. This is the consensus. I mean, there's all views, but this is uh, uh, what we think is currently going on, what they think is currently going on. So um, if you've and I and some of this even taught to kids in the USA, I think in middle school, um, the the Indo-Aryan migration, which if you look it up, it's actually one of the you'll see the map. Uh, right away. Um, this was an influx of people from the north and to the west, the steppe region, um, who migrated into India around about 2000 BCE. So that would be about 4000 years ago. And these are the Indo-Aryans. Okay, so this is a migration. It's not over a period of many years, maybe hundreds of years, it is not thought to be a violent invasion. So they gradually came in, they settled. But obviously, people who are in India, the indigenous, and one of the indigenous groups are Dravidians, which I will be talking about later, they were obviously, they were um, displaced, they moved to the east and to the, to the south. Um, but there were waves of settlement, and they were pastoralists. And so the current population of India is composed of the both the indigenous and the ancient settlers and is mixed to various extents. Other important invasions occurred over the millennia, and the significant ones would be the Mughal conquest, the Muslim conquest of the Middle Ages, and the British rule from the 18th to the middle of the 20th century. Um, but uh, the caste system began with the Indo-Aryan migration. 
Okay, it is described in the Rig Veda, which is the first Hindu scripture, uh, they think written around 1500 or so BCE. Okay, and um, that describes the caste system. It has four varnas, the Brahmas, the, Bra the Brahmins, the Kshatriyas, the Vaishyas, and the Shudras. And, and the people below, they were not called Dalits. They were like Avarnas, Novarna. They were outcasts. And um, before I go further into describing this, I'm going to uh, play a, a brief clip. Um, this is a video that was put out recently by HuffPost, um, and it features Sujatha Gidla, who is an author. She is a Dalit author who now lives in New York City, and she's written a book called um, Ants Among Elephants, An Untouchable Family and the Making of Modern India. And she does it in this video clip and Sujatha herself. They do a great job breaking it down. So I'm going to play it real quick. The first time I knew that I was inferior, I probably was 18 months old. I knew that we were untouchables. Untouchability means actually untouchability. You cannot touch them. Caste is a forced occupation based on your birth. When I first came to America, people treated me equally. In fact, even in the beginning, I used to feel, uh, what if they touch me, uh, they're, you know, they're going to be polluted. One time, he, my, a boyfriend of mine was eating from something that I already touched, and he was going there, and I said, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. I touched it, I touched it, and his heart broke, like, uh, you're not in, a, in, in India anymore. Hinduism, more or less, is an ideological, religious prop for this social system that is caste. Brahma, the creator, uh, the Brahmins are supposed to have come from uh, the forehead and the Kshatriyas from the arms, merchant caste from the thighs, service caste from legs. And untouchables are not part of any of uh, Brahma, the creator. What makes them untouchable is they are assigned hereditary duties that are considered filthy and menial by the Indian society. Like the hardest jobs are theirs and the filthiest jobs are given to them. Based on these different occupations, there are about, in my area, 52 different subcastes within untouchability. And my family is called Mala. Mala means uh, people who do agricultural labor. And there are others who do, like, removing dead animals, burning the dead people, and carrying away human sh**. My stories, my family stories, were not stories in India. They were just life. Your life is your caste. Your caste is your life. At 26, I came to America, where people know only skin color. Only in talking to some friends I met here did I realize that my stories, my family stories, are not stories of shame. It's not healed. It is not healed. The advice I give to untouchables that are still in India, I think that the best thing they can do is get jobs like I have in a crucial industry like MTA, if we don't work, then everything comes to a screeching halt. And it really gives a sense of like, you know, yes, your, your services are crucial to the society. That gives me a lot of self-confidence that I didn't have. I'm not going to be like saying America is great, but yeah, for untouchables, yeah, it is. And for me, it's uh, like pop music, Madonna, Bob Dylan, and it's an uh, intellectually free world. It's an escape for us. I would be judged by my nationality, but not by my caste. That gave me courage to think, what is untouchability and why am I an untouchable? I don't think uh, uh, there's any other solution for caste than demolishing the existing structure because caste had a particular economic uh, function and that's the purpose it served, division of labor. This is not a kind of thing that I can say, oh, change your minds and stuff. You break the structures that necessitate this sort of exploitation. Unless you break the structures, uh, this is all going to be a band-aid on a bullet wound.
So I'm going to uh, stop right there. So um, as uh, Ms. Gidla explained, uh, there are these four castes and the Dalits who are uh, outcasts and they do all these menial jobs, the really dirty jobs that uh, nobody uh, else wants to do. And these are hereditary. So if your father is a street cleaner, then the, the, the children are also street cleaners. And that's what happens generation after generation. You've inherited so Dalits right now in India are um, uh, for 15% of the population. So that is maybe around uh, 200 million people. Um, there is also another group which is not included in that diagram, but Adivasis, these are the tribal peoples, which could be another 10 to 15%. So maybe we're going, you know, uh, so 30%. And um, and, and the, the, the line between the bottom caste, the Shudras and the Dalits is kind of blurry. Um, so the Shudras are also marginalized in a lot of ways. Um, so the upper Cast, the Brahmins, the Kshatriyas, the Vaishyas, and of course the representation of those different castes varies by different regions of India. But overall, they're about 30% of the population. Now, and I, I asked, you know, can you, Brahmins who are supposed to be the top, the priests and the teachers, can you guess what percentage of the population they are? Um, I think that I remember you saying they were like 3%. Right. Is that right? So, that's right. Some, so somebody guessed five, and that is, yeah, around 3%. Where I come from, it would uh, Tamil Nadu, it would be more like 2.5%. That's so tiny. So when you have a panel or some other project where everybody says they're Brahmins, okay, <laughs> you're not really being very representative of India. And there are some things very unique about Brahmins, which I will go uh, to explain. And you were saying the, the odds are very likely that if we know the Indians that we do know are Brahmins. You're going to find uh, you're going to find a large, much larger proportion of Brahmins in the USA than you are in India. Mm -hmm. Okay. See what I mean? Because yeah. they are the ones with the resources to 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 move and and to come, and especially if they are say teachers. If education is part, you know, if somebody's a street cleaner and and that's the hereditary occupation, <laughs> it's hard for them to move up. But if somebody has to go to college and and learn, well, you know, this is a knowledge economy right now, right? Mm -hmm. So you are going to find a relatively higher proportion of Brahmins and, and some of the other castes as well, mm -hmm. um, in, uh, in other upper castes mm -hmm. as well, generally upper castes. Mm -hmm. So um, now, okay, I also, there, you know, I also recommend um, a great a series of uh, short videos. Doc it's a documentary. It's on um, um, YouTube. It's called India Untouched by Stalin K. And it really explains how uh, casteism works in India today. So, you know, young children learning that they're not supposed to go into uh, this neighborhood because it is, it's, it's the people of this Dalit, this is lower caste and you're not supposed to touch them. You're not supposed to drink water. It's polluting. Okay, so these are uh, that's happening today. So definitely recommend people to watch that. So what has all this got to do with uh, animal rights? And well, uh, you know, we have seen the um, what a species is. I mean, you've seen a diagram, which is a triangle with a man, a human male on top and, 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 a, and a gradually larger number of uh, animals at the bottom. And some animals we put a high value on and some animals we almost put no value on. And it is very similar to the way uh, caste is envisioned also. It's a triangle with Brahmins at the top, mm -hmm. and then and then goes down to Kshatriya, Vaishya, Shudras, and Dalits at the very bottom. So we all learn speciesism pretty early. Um, it is a, it's a some it's a schema that we have um, in our in our in our minds. We we learn speciesism, and uh, I also learned casteism. The uh, pain of some animals does not matter. Okay, the pain of some animals does not matter. Um, how they live, we don't, we, we can't, we don't care about that. In the same way, the pain of some people, the suffering of some people, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Okay, if you see, if if you see people in the streets, if you see people struggling for food, if they are doing uh, backbreaking labor, that's just the way it is. Okay, mm -hmm. just like speciesism, we have casteism. Mm -hmm. Okay, so these are things um, I learned from my own upbringing. So what has got all this got to do with eating and food? Well, a lot. Uh, and these are things that are so obvious. I don't really need any references. Um, high caste in Hindus do not eat meat because it is polluting. And we do eat dairy. Uh, dairy is an important part of the diet, but uh, we don't eat meat. It's polluting. Now, lower caste um, uh, other castes can eat meat. They uh, tend not to eat uh, pigs because pigs are considered 
filthy and dirty. They tend not to eat cows because cows are supposed to have a privileged status, which I will talk about in a little bit. Uh, but Dalits, the Avarnas, they pretty much eat all meat, you know, all, all different kinds of animals. And they say the reason that Dalits, you know, this is one of the rationalizations, the, the, the reason that Dalits became um, untouchable is because their jobs include things like removing dead cattle and skinning the cattle for leather and things like that. So is India vegetarian? Um, let's take a look at this. Now, these are sort of census data from India um, to some extent, and to, they're not particularly the most accurate, but it's what we have. It's about the most, uh, it's, it's what we have access to. Well, we know that about... Yeah, and, and I was going to say for those who want to look at the slides, which we mentioned at the beginning, this there's a very clear map of what Rama is speaking about right now. Uh, the map. Um, so basically, seventy percent of India is non-vegetarian. Non-vegetarian. So about thirty percent is vegetarian. Now, do we? And it's the number of non-vegetarians is likely to be underreported. Okay, we we know that's a majority. It's likely to be underreported because eating meat is kind of a stigma. Okay, so it's it's polluting. So if anything is likely to be underreported and um, and some parts of India, you know, where I come from, it says 97, 98 percent are non-vegetarians in Tamil Nadu, which is amazing. Um, now, let me say a little bit more about this. If 30 percent of India is vegetarian, you'd think people in India would have a positive view of vegetarianism because 30 percent is quite a lot. Right. Compared to European countries, compared to the U.S. Right. You see, you're, you know, one in three people you see is a vegetarian. No, they do not. <laughs> we think mm. vegetarianism is not the ideal diet. OK. We think meat to be strong, to build muscle, to be an athlete, to be hale and hearty. You need to eat meat. OK, so the reason they're vegetarian is a kind of an ascetic sort of thing. We're doing it for purity. And, and in fact, some of the lower castes, like people who are uh, uh, military or, or people who do physical labor, they eat meat because they think they need to. And it also makes them impure at the same time. But so if the higher caste, like the Brahmins, they're more vegetarian than the rest of the, the cast, yes. right? So if it's not considered to be the ideal diet, why did they opt for that one? Right. So they opted for it because of purity pollution reasons. Okay. So you're saying like nutritionally, I guess morally it is still regarded as higher than the other diets, but nutritionally it's considered deficient? That's right. Okay. Yes. Yes. Now, uh, hopefully things are, you know, now that we are in the age of, you know, uh, things like um, uh, forks over knives and things like that, hopefully people, I you know, all these vegan bodybuilders, maybe that's changing. But, you know, I'm telling you, a lot of people in India are still going to think vegetarianism is nutritionally deficient, even though we are 30 percent vegetarian. So and, and I know you said a couple of things that I want to pick up on, but let me um, leave it for now. I'm, I think I'm going to pick up on them again in a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to talk about a little conversation that is by Christina Thomas Danaraj. She is a Dalit woman activist and she's uh, talking about a conversation, Indian corporate lunch table conversation. A person A um, says, uh, I think this is herself. Um, is there non-veg for lunch today? Person B says, don't know. I'm veg anyway. A says, oh, you veg? B says, yes, I'm Brahmin. A says, oh, I'm Dalit. I love non-veg, especially beef. B eyes wide. Why you talk cast? I didn't ask. But A says, but you talked. You said you were a Brahmin, no? So she, it's, it's, the understanding that somebody being a vegetarian and Brahmin, it's so natural how it goes together. It's about purity. It's really not about caring about animals. It's certainly not about any kind of intersectional or, or total liberation values. It's not about empathy. It is not about compassion. It's not about any of those things. Mm -hmm. I wanted to quote some things from Kimlicka and Donaldson and uh, Dangerous Crossings. Claire King also says similar sorts of things. Um, dominant groups, this is the quote, dominant groups have long justified their exercise of power over minorities or indigenous peoples by appealing to the backward or bar barbaric way they treat women, children or animals. 
In these cases, we have racialized minorities being told that their practices are cruel. The intention in highlighting these practices may be to improve the treatment of animals, but the effect may be to reproduce long-standing prejudices. So this is exactly, I'm totally in line with this, this is exactly uh, what I see going on. So these are people, the Dalits and so on, they're, they're uh, barbarians, um, they're cruel, uh, they don't know how to treat animals, so it's I, I, I agree with this, <laughs> the latter part of what they wrote. It's just the effect is actually to reproduce long, long-standing prejudices. Mm-hmm. Even now in India, you will see advertisements saying uh, for uh, apartments uh, or houses to, to be rented, they say vegetarians only. What does that mean? But, I mean and, and you can look now. You can uh, Google uh, apartments in, in India for vegetarians, <laughs> and you'll see that's how I got this image that I have on the slide. And I'm going to quote you uh, a little uh, part from uh, a book by Kancha Ailaya, who's also an activist. Um, it's, the book is called Why I'm Not a Hindu. The quote is, upper caste landlords or landladies put up boards which read, house rented only to vegetarians. Vegetarian is a synonym for Brahmin. And this expression is used to drive away all Dalit Bahujans from their localities. So it's a kind of a code. It's code. We don't, we don't want riffraff here. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, another very interesting thing that, I mean, because another advertisement here, it's about how they are going to uh, build a Brahmin-only community, and they're calling a sattvic village. Okay, that's a very important word. What does sattvic mean? And usually, it's 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 uh, used in reference to food. Okay, so sattvic food is food that is plant-based and can include dairy, uh, but it's considered pure and clean. And in fact, mm. it really maps along so maps well and aligns with uh, our current understanding of clean eating. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to say there's so many parallels between the way that vegetarianism is portrayed in Brahman, yeah. like exclusive circles, and the way that veganism is in like this purity, clean eating trend in Western countries today. It, it's absolutely like that. Um, and I, I wanted to bring attention to that because that word sattvic, okay, because that's a casteist word. That is a casteist word. Let's talk a little bit about why it is the cow is sacred in India. I mean, why? Okay, the cow gives milk, gives in, in, in quotation, air quotes, of course. In heavy quotes. <laughs> heavy. <laughs> gives milk. And they say, what about the buffalo? Because India has indigenous buffalo, right? What about the buffalo? The buffalo also gives milk. In fact, the Dravidian peoples were already buffalo herders. Apparent, uh, that's what I understand um, from reading the literature. Uh, when the Indo-Aryans came along, um, they managed to domesticate the buffalo, which, which Americans could never do. Okay, that's a, it's a point of pride with uh, Dravidians that they managed to domesticate the buffalo. So again, why did the cow but not the buffalo become the Hindu spiritual animal? I'm going to quote from Kancha Ailaya from a book called Buffalo Nationalism. The reason is simple. The buffalo is a black animal. Just as Dravidians, a black people, were never granted any spiritual status, the buffalo as a black animal was allowed none. Brahminic Hindu literature projected Brahmins as Budevatas, gods on earth, and cow as Gomata, the mother animal, as it was white, as well as their staple food. For generation after generation, Hindu scriptures venerated Brahmins among human beings and cows among animals. So this, I would say, is castized speciesism. Okay. Uh, wow. So, so the beef ban, only, you know, pretty much uh, is only um, applied to cows. You know, uh, c- killing uh, other bovines is is kind of okay. Yeah. Um, and what a, what a, so again, I'm going to bust other myths about Hinduism. Uh, does what is Hinduism? Does it even really exist? And the more I start thinking about it and reading it and reading about it, and and some of us who are already Hindus. I mean, we know that Hinduism can be almost anything it is just it's a it's a multifaceted thing and hindu as a word didn't even exist since till the 11th century ce because that's when uh, the muslim invaders needed a name to call people of the indus valley hindus and then later on with Br- british colonization they wanted a way to differentiate between um the, so, the hindus and the muslims so they can uh, so that it's useful for them for conversion 
con- Christian conversion purposes. Mm-hmm. So they kind of solidified uh, that situation. But really, what we mean by Hinduism is like a variety of scriptures, variety of practices, the whole pantheon of deities. Let's just say I go to some obscure part of India, and there are villages there, and they are uh, worshiping gods that I've never heard of, and they have certain practices and rituals that I have never seen, and they say that's Hindu. I'd say, okay, okay, because that's what it is. Hinduism is there. And then the other thing about Hinduism is um, it didn't have a founder, like Christianity has a founder, um, Islam has a founder, Hinduism didn't really have a founder, it's, it's a lot of different things. So I would say, we are putting mm-hmm. a rigid structure on something that is very fluid, and uh, amorphous. And also, um, current views of India, Indian identity has also, it's also become uh, 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 followed that uh, uh, rigid um, system that's been imposed, and I will pick up on that in a little bit. Well, what about Ahimsa? Okay, this is an important topic. Well, honestly, all I, this is a lot of what I know here comes from a book called, um, and I, it's called um, The Myth of the Holy Cow by Dian Cha. It is actually a banned book in India, apparently, but it's a good, it's actually a pretty good book, and I encourage everybody to grab a copy. Um, it's very well, uh, it's got lots and lots of citations in the sense that they've read all the literature, and there's an enormous amount of literature, <laughs> which we don't want to get bogged down reading. But what this author is saying is that there's always been animal sacrifices. Okay, the Rig Veda describe animal sacrifices and list a variety of animals that can be eaten. Um, there were there were discussions of ahimsa, which started uh, uh, early on about non-harming, but it was defined in various ways. And let me actually, I'm going to read some of this. And this is this is a text by Manu, which was written uh, maybe 2,000 years ago. Manu asserts that animals were created for the sake of sacrifice, that killing, vada, on ritual occasions is non-killing, avada. And injury, himsa, has enjoined by the Veda, is known to be non-injury, ahimsa. So what that's saying is sometimes killing is ahimsa, but other times it is Sometimes killing is himsa, other times it's ahimsa, because you can do it for certain reasons. If you kill for certain reasons, that's ahimsa. What they're saying is an animal that is killed for sacrifice actually reaches a kind of higher level and they come back as a more advanced being. It's actually good for the animal to be killed as sacrifice. And not just that, the sacrificer, the human being who's doing the sacrificing also uh, gets certain kinds of benefits because of that. So... What does ahimsa really mean? It's meant all kinds of things. Um, yeah, I just could not believe that when you said that during your presentation last time, just because, I mean, <laughs> sure, using ahimsa as a white vegan who has no knowledge of India or doesn't really know a lot of Indian people like is problematic in itself. But the like, I didn't even know that it didn't mean strictly something vegan right. before your talk. Right. Um, now this, yeah, I'm, uh, so this I'm talking, um, you know, what I'm talking about, how, what Ahimsa meant over time, um, Jainism, we'll talk a little bit about Jainism. I don't, yeah, maybe this is a good time to mention Jainism, Jainism, which came about after now the Jains are all about, I mean, they're part of their main doctrines is Ahimsa is not killing now. Um, but again, why, and, and another book I would recommend is Kim Sosha's book on animal liberation and atheism. Um, why are Jains, uh, about Ahimsa? Well, they, it's really about, again, do, it's not an animal rights thing. You know, they believe that doing harm to another being means you can't ascend um, uh, spiritually. Um, and the fact that if somebody is born as, as an animal, it's because of certain evil doings and, you know, in, in previous really? life and so on. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. So why, yeah. Why is an, why is a uh, cow a cow? Well, in a factory farm? Well, it must have been because they did something wrong in their previous life. Hmm. So they kind, it's, it's the karma. It's karma. Right. It's with, it's That's interesting that they still think that those been those inferior beings are not worth killing. Then, right. That's right. So that is yeah. In some ways, it's good. So they they do believe that other beings feel pain the way we do, which is a definitely a, a an advancement over say Cartesian thinking, which is animals are like machines and they don't actually feel it. Uh, but they're mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I do agree with that part, and that's something you know um, incontrovertible. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so yeah, so what about uh, yeah? So let's. Um, what about this idea of uh, India being or Hinduism being nonviolent, spiritual? You know, articles about this come seem to come up every few years or so. This is a recent article: Is India a really spiritual civilization? It came in the Indian Express, uh, September second of this year, so about a month ago, um, and talks about no, that's really not true. Yes, we're spiritual, but you know, we're materialistic as much as anybody, if not more. Again, it's a kind of idea that we have, it's a kind of a, a an, 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 an image that's been uh, imposed on us, and we have sort of accepted and kind of ran with it, I suppose. Um, I'm going to quote Romilla Thopper, who is an eminent historian. This is from her book, uh, The Past as Present. And she talks about this, and she says, I quote, religious violence is not alien to Hinduism, despite the modern myth that the Hindus are by instinct and religion a nonviolent people. One suspects that the genesis of this myth was in the romantic image of the past in some Orientalist scholarship and in the requirements of nationalism stressing the spiritual superiority of the Indian culture of which nonviolence was treated as a component. So she bas and basically that quote underscores and improves upon the things um, that I have been saying. Okay, when I say nonviolence, now people are going to think, what about Gandhi? You know, what about Gandhi? Well, um, <laughs> this is another thing. Kind of, I guess it kind of blows people's minds a little bit. Um, uh, Gandhi is a, has a very mixed reputation, and more and more Dalits, people of Dalit descent or Dalits, are beginning to speak out against Gandhi. Now, Gandhi, for all his nonviolence and uh, leading India towards independence and so on, he was a casteist. He wanted to abolish untouchability, but he did not want to abolish casteism. He wanted Dalits to say what they are. He thought Hindian society can only function and operate with the caste system set in place. He believed, like, if you are a bathroom cleaner by caste, that's how your 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 um, offspring your, uh, should stay um, forever. Forever. That's what he believed. He believed in hereditary occupations, and he did not want to abolish casteism. So this is an article written by uh, Tain Murray Soundarajan. She's a, a Dalit activist, and it's on Medium. It's called Why It Is Time to Dump Gandhi, Accessible to Everybody. So let's take a, please take a look at that if you can. Um, so she talks about uh, Gandhi being obviously anti-black because he was a lawyer in um, South Africa. Um, he is definitely casteist for the reason I just explained, and definitely misogynist and uh, um, and, and uh, patriarchal. So um, please take a look at that article. But I do want to quote what Ken Murray says about this. So here I quote, Now I know Gandhi has been a sacred cow for many activists, but not talking about the truth in order to protect personal attachments to his myth simply maintains false ideas about many core discussions that we urgently need to have between our movements. This includes conversations about nonviolence, international solidarity, anti-blackness, and strategies to end caste oppression. So if, if there are some people in India who are against Gandhi because they're trying to abolish casteism, it's not a good thing for the vegan movement to adopt Gandhi as one of our leaders. Mm -hmm. um, why is and this is something that my people could really ask, and I would ask myself, why isn't casteism known about? Why don't other people in other countries know about it? Why has, how has it been kind of kept on the, under the rug for so long? Yes, untouchability in particular. Like, right. that is just, that blew my mind. I, right. That just seems so extreme and concerning of so many people in India, like right. of the Dalit class that I can't, I can't believe that I don't know it's not talked about more it's not talked about more and it is really strange and it's and I think it, it, when I started being a vegan and all this make how it's mixed up with caste and so on it was obvious to me and I was privileged to be a vegan because I was already a vegetarian that's a privilege right mm -hmm. um and it was I knew about it and I was waiting for somebody else to talk about it <laughs> I waited I did like four years why isn't anybody else talking about it okay okay fine now I think I'm gonna have to talk about it and maybe somebody else will talk about it after me which I think will happen mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe more people talk about it now but I mean I also think that Dalits have not had the resources to have their voice heard but now with social media 
There's um, mm-hmm. much they they are really coming out coming to their own, and I follow the, uh, lots of them on you know Twitter and and Facebook and and Medium, and it's I, I've learned a lot. It's been um, really enlightening for me. So I'm going to quote Arundhati Roy, right? She's an activist in India. She's an author, celebrated author, and so let's see what she says. Why is it nobody knows about this? She's asking the same question, and here I quote: Other contemporary abominations like apartheid, racism, sexism, economic imperialism, and religious fundamentalism have been political and intellectually challenged at international forums. How is it that the practice of caste in India, one of the most brutal modes of hierarchical social organization that human society has known, has managed to escape similar scrutiny and censure? She actually doesn't know. And again, I quote, she says, perhaps because it has come to be so fused with Hinduism and by extension with so much that is seen to be kind and good Mysticism, spiritualism, nonviolence, tolerance, vegetarianism, Gandhi, yoga, backpackers, the Beatles, that at least to outsiders, it seems impossible to pry it loose and try to understand it. I guess you, as you can see, close quote, as you can see, she is tried to, to, to come to terms with, you know, why is it nobody knows about it? Um, I'm. The next quote is by Dr. Ambedkar. Ambedkar in the early 20th century um, is a social uh, reformer, uh, politician. uh, And Ambedkar says um, the whole the old Orthodox Hindu and that would be uh, of my grandparents generation. The old Orthodox Hindu does not think that there is anything wrong in the observance of untouchability to him. It is a normal and natural thing. As such, it neither calls for expiation nor explanation. The new modern Hindu, that would be my generation, I guess, the new modern Hindu realizes the wrong, but he is ashamed to discuss it in public for fear of letting the foreigner know that the Hindu civilization can be guilty of such a vicious and infamous system or social code as evidenced by untouchability. Mm-hmm. So that uh, resonates with me. Um, I think I think that gets at the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, I want a couple of other points I want to make, important points. What is Hindutva? Well, Hindutva is a uh, ideology that is, it means Hinduness, and it's a way to define Hindu culture and Hindu identity in terms of Hindu values. So it is remaking India in, formers, in, 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 the terms, in, in, the, in, in terms of Hinduism. Okay, The current political party in, in power, the Bhartiya Janata Party, or BJP, is based on Hindutva ideology. So it's right-wing Hindu nationalism and claims Hindu supremacy. So it discriminates against Muslims and lower castes and Dalits and Adivasis. Okay, um, and how can how can they do this? Well, there's a lot of uh, retelling of history. Um, when uh, Ramila Thapar talks, so when she tries to explain history to the best of her ability, as, as I say, they are historians. And people criticize when they write about history. They say, I'm going to, again, quote this uh, passage from her book, um, The Past is Present. The chapter is Writing History Textbooks, a memoir. She says, the issues that were raised by our critics were routine and predictable. Why was there a mention of beef eating? Why was it not said that the Aryans were indigenous to India? Where was the necessity to mention the disabilities of lower castes? Why did we not consistently depict Muslim rulers as oppressors and and tyrants and so on? So this is the image that the Hindutva ideology tries to project, that Aryans were indigenous to India, and because you know they wrote the Vedas, right? So it needs, so Hindu Hinduism needs to come out of India. So they're kind of retelling history, and and don't mention the fact that we ate beef because the cow is sacred. Uh, don't mention untouchability because that makes us look bad. Uh, and you have to make the Muslim rulers look evil every time, because this is what Hindutva ideology is. So it's like a form of respectability politics, mm-hmm. right? It it sounds like. Um, to cater to this like colonial vision yeah. of India's, I don't know, deserving of respect because they themselves are so peaceful and so in line with like the earth and yes, yeah, yeah, I would, I would, um, yeah, I would, I would, I would definitely uh, uh, agree with that. Um, so one outcome of the uh, the BJP uh, rule is the beef ban. Right, so they came up with the beef ban. When was the beef ban passed? Um, 2015, I think 2015. Okay. Okay. So not all states, 
Okay, some of them, a, a lot of them. Um, so this is an article from 2017. Um, it's by Ahmad Dewakar in the New Republic. Uh, it's really very good. It's called How Cow Vigilantes Launched India's Lynching Epidemic. Okay, so what's going on right now? Anybody who is suspected of eating beef or, or engaging in, you know, some kind of uh, selling of beef, um, they are they're being lynched. Okay, so they are being publicly flogged and 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 killed. Actually, blows my mind. And so um, this lists this article lists uh, a lot of people and uh, who are who are being killed. And and I won't mention any of them because we honestly don't have the time to feel sorry for all of this that's going on, which is hideous. And and there's more since this is 2017 and it's only getting worse. I'm going to go on. I'm going to quote some people. Um, this is Charon Subramanian. He's the executive, he's an ex executive committee member of Ambedkar King Study Circle. And I asked Charon, can you tell me uh, what does the beef ban mean to you and how is it, how has it affected you? And he said, I can answer the first part, but the second, how it has affected me, not sure whether my feelings are relevant as I didn't get directly affected by the ban. I mean, I wasn't consuming beef earlier. Just after the ban and subsequent atrocities on Dalits and minorities made me rethink and reevaluate my food choices. So I started eating beef as a counter narrative. And in fact, I do consciously make an effort that my kids also do not have any sort of aversion based on some stupid preachings like I got from my grandparents and my parents about beef or any other meat. Okay, so this is a counter narrative, right? And this is what some people are doing in India. I'm going to eat beef precisely because you told me not to. <laughs> this is why bans don't kind of work. Um, people have to make, make the decision. And, and it's interesting. Sharon is also being um, anti-speciesist. He's saying, well, I can eat a chicken. So why can't I eat a cow? Right. <laughs> I can eat all of them because as vegans, we don't want you to eat any of them. But you can see his point. Um, here's another quote. And I think this is really good. This person did not want to be identified, but I know they are uh, Catholic uh, by birth, uh, born of Catholic parents. Uh, they say, I fully believe the ban was motivated by oppressive upper caste Hindu domination and opportunistic business reasons. Heck, I even remember there being a conference organized on how to push pork as the protein of choice way before the ban even happened. I'll stick with the oppressive motives because that's what I'm reacting to. As intrinsic as beef has been to my own idea of what constitutes food, okay, they're Catholic, they're Christian, and therefore the personal anger, I can't even with having to deal with what it means to have that happen to you as a Muslim. I'm afraid you won't be able to get much more out of me because all that follows is incoherent anger, the kind you feel when someone says something both absolutely outrageous and obtuse. Um, one other person I, I uh, got a quote from, and I love this because um, she really puts it in a great way. Uh, Devika Karnad is a PhD student at Cardiff University, um, all, also happens to be my alma mater. Um, she says, I asked her, you know, what do you think about this Western vegan movement talking about ahimsa and Hinduism and Indian vegetarianism? And she says, I think it's a really bad connection to make. It's strengthening the very toxic Hindu nationalist agenda. It's a huge issue in Indian vegan circles as well, because vegetarianism is so easily associated with the rhetoric of purity and, and also anti-Muslim sentiments. Any, anyway, the Hindu vegetarian is a huge exploiter of cows because how much dairy is consumed. So I think that there's definitely non-vegan friendly philosophical schools. And then I, um, I asked Devika, you know, I've been trying to get some uh, Dalits to give me their, what they feel, uh, you know, whether or not, not they're vegan, they're, you know, most of them aren't. Um, what well, the people I asked aren't. What do you feel about uh, the beef ban? I asked them, and I wasn't getting anything back. And she says, yeah, I would imagine it would be difficult to accommodate a vegan perspective when they're arguing for freedom of choice. But then the freedom of animals is also not being considered there, which is incredibly sad. I've seen people proudly eating beef as a protest against Hindutva politics. I do also believe that, however, that veganism or vegetarianism should not be forced upon anyone, which is what Hindutva tries to do. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I liked her because she says what I'm thinking. 
Um, so, I, you know, again, going back to uh, what do we get out of all this? You know, don't I hope I've made my point. Please do not valorize Indian vegetarianism, Hinduism, Ahimsa, or even Buddhism and Jainism. Don't valorize Gandhian principles. Um, if you want to represent people of Indian descent, try to include people from castes, uh, lower castes and Dalits and Adivasi and uh, maybe Muslim because Muslims are Indians too, you know, <laughs> um, or Indians are some Indians are Muslims. Mm -hmm. um, so how, and I want to talk about the next few slides, the next two points is about how uh, the vegan movement, the vegan leaders um, have in fact appropriated Hinduism. And uh, the first point uh, is, a, is about Dr. Will Tuttle. And um, I love Dr. Tuttle. He's a, he's a, he's a actually a personal friend. I've met him in person and he's absolutely wonderful. I love his book, um, and, uh, books in plural. And um, But I think that um, he, he needs to think about this and consider this. Um, I got an email from him, which is you know one of his mass emails sent out uh, last November, about so one year ago, after his trip to India. And he says, this is the first time anyone has ever undertaken a national lecture tour in India promoting veganism, which in many ways is still a fledgling stage in India. We are deeply grateful to Shankar Narayan, founder of India's only national vegan group, the Sattvic Vegan Society. There's for that working word. tirelessly. No. <laughs> so, yeah. And uh, and then uh, Dr. Tuttle goes on and says, uh, one activist predicted that veganism will spread more quickly in India than any other country. And we can see that this may be so as Indian people increasingly remember their roots and are re-inspired re by the ancient Indian teaching of Ahimsa. Nonviolence is the foundation of inner and outer peace and harmony, which is... And close quote, but I mean, it seems odd when when people are, you know, coming in and saying things like that. OK, when a white American is coming in and saying things like that and people are being killed over the beef ban, you know, it just doesn't quite jibe. Um, the, and then as some other examples recently, uh, Tobias Leonard, who has never really talked much about Hinduism or Ahimsa before, uh, just recently, about a month ago, has a website, I think it's called Ahimsa something.com. And he pictured standing in front of a, a canvas that has the Om sign, the, the Hindu Om sign behind it, which is kind of interesting, kind of very slick, I would say. Um, uh, so there's another example. James Aspie said he went to a yoga studio and he was giving a talk on Ahimsa. Okay, I guess it's basically the same talk that he does, but Maybe with himself, the word thrown in there, in there a little bit. But even, ama even amazing, um, um, move, the save movement. I mean, even this, we love the save movement. But uh, the memorandum of understand, memorandum of understanding, save movement uses the strategy of bearing witness to animals in their final moments. We use a love-based community organizing approach based on nonviolence, love, and truth, as informed by Leo Tol Tolstoy and Mahatma Gandhi. Oh, um, of course, I, I think this whole Ahimsa thing, again, uh, could be, well, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but I do think uh, Gary Francione had a lot to do with it, uh, with Ahimsa becoming so popular in um, uh, veganism. I mean, the vegan movement of vegans among vegans in the U.S. Um, he be, he calls himself a Jane and he went to a Jane conference trying to convince Janes to become, uh, to quit dairy, I suppose. Oh, um, I didn't know. Oh, yeah, you could Google and you can find that on YouTube. Yeah, I really didn't know why the word Ahimsa was so popular in the vegan movement. I'm going to trace it back to Gary Francione, but it could go back further. But mm -hmm. he definitely did a lot to popularize it. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course, when the beef ban came along, Leo DiCaprio will join anti-beef Hindu group Rashtriya Sayamsevak Sangha at the group's 50th anniversary celebration. Of course, people are shocked. <laughs> this is Leo DiCaprio and Veg News is commenting on the beef ban. And they're like, what? This is a fascist policy and you're supporting it and you're aligning the vegan movement with that? <laughs> okay, I have a last couple of points. Wait, was I, this yeah. Veg News article critical of the beef ban? Or no, are they no, 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 they like it. They like it. Okay. Oh, everybody was celebrating the beef ban. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Probably doesn't make us look very good. Well, it says actually, um, while the motivation for the beef ban is religious, it's religious. DiCaprio joined the movement to connect beef consumption to probably the environment. I would mm -hmm. say I can't read the rest of the quote here, but mm -hmm. yeah. Um, either way, there was a lot of talk um, in veg news and other, uh, vegan news outlets mm -hmm. about the beef pan as a positive thing. Yeah, I do remember that.
Yeah. Um, so what are some of the what are people thinking about? And I want to read some of these tweets that I come across, um, uh, uh, like uh, how it relates to the vegan movement. And, and, and please, you know, consider this. I mean, this is a uh, Ambedkar's caravan. Um, they are uh, they are talking about uh, this is around the uh, Independence Day for India, which is August 15th. And they've said, how do you define freedom? What is your definition of independence? Would you call killing on the name of cow and caste freedom? Can a country like India ever be free from caste discrimination? Now, this other person I was having a discussion with, and they're saying, well, why the beef? What is the beef ban doing? The beef ban is suppressing and undernourishing the population. Some people only have certain kinds of foods to eat. And if that is not available to them, it looks like uh, the, the people in power are trying to kill them off without that food. And that's how they interpret it. They're trying to kill them off. Um, here's another one that I really want to read. Um, this guy, who is obviously a uh, uh, what they call a um, uh, sanghi, but he said it happens in any society. He's supporting uh, vigilantism. He's saying it happens in any society. Nothing wrong in it. One should act according to the law of the land. Otherwise, there will be consequences. One should respect the sentiments of the majority community. They are free to eat any kind of meat they like. Pork, buffalo, goat, etc. Why they insist upon cow's meat? I'll tell you why. Because it's sacred to Hindus, and that's where this issue begins. Wow. <laughs> so he's saying... So hey. he's not even at all making the connection between, like, not harming animals no. and the beef band. It's just, no. like, a law to basically further oppress people who don't, like, can't make that choice. Yeah. And remember, earlier on, the, uh, one of the people I got uh, uh, quotes from, they were saying, um, they were discussing how to make pork the protein of, of instead of instead of cow so it's not that they care about animals they just don't want cows killed cow is the sacred animal that is related to hinduism right the cow. Uh, this one other quote which i think is kind of funny apparently it's a quartz article the title of the quartz article in public india is vegetarian in private it loves its chicken and this guy is saying uh what is this bullshit it is no secret india is a majority beef eating nation okay Again, there are myths that we love about India, and we can't, I can't get people to <laughs> divest themselves of mm -hmm. or disabuse themselves of that. Um, and I, I finally want to finish up with this quote, again, from Arundhati Roy. And uh, this is a great quote because she's basically saying it uh, with reference to uh, people, uh, at the marginalized people, but it applies to animals too. There's really no such thing as the voiceless. There are only the deliberately silenced or the preferably unheard. Hmm. Really powerful quote. Yeah. Thank you so much. That was such an interesting presentation. I can't believe that got to almost an hour. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but it went by really fast. Um, and that just makes me think like your last, the, the last slide before this one. Yeah. I think it ties back to what you were saying at the beginning of like the white vegan movement wanting to include voices of color just to be cosmetically more diverse and say like, oh, mm -hmm. but look, like mm -hmm. India's always been vegetarian, mm -hmm. let alone the fact that vegetarian is yes. not really like veganism, but whatever, like, hey, look, we're taking inspiration from non-white people. Yes. You know, yes. um, it seeks to make veganism inherently inclusive because supposedly all these people of color have been doing it for much longer than we have. So it's this lazy approach where, right. like, we don't really want to learn about it. So that's what we end up saying. And then that ends up making, like, us look really bad in countries like India who mm -hmm. associate casteism and Hinduism with this very non-vegan idea of, like, oppressing mm -hmm, certain mm -hmm. people based on their class or... They're cast. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's really mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. And I absolutely agree with what you said. Yes. Yeah. That, that makes me just even so much more against the word, <laughs> using the word ahimsa in the vegan movement constantly. I mean, I have to, I mean, like I tell people in India, um, that uh, this is what they're doing here. Uh, you know, it's they think India is a place where it's all ahimsa and vegetarianism and peace and harmony and, they literally laugh. Mm. They laugh. Wow. We don't want the vegan movement to be the butt of jokes. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I'm, I'm curious. You said something about how we shouldn't associate veganism with Buddhism as well. Can you quickly um, sure. expand on that point? Sure. Um, Buddhists are not 
vegetarian or vegan, um, they have pretty much the um, same view of animals as Jains do in the sense okay. that you sort of ascend up the, the, uh, the chain of being mm -hmm. and a human being is the supreme. Okay. And karma it what, what makes you into a different kind of animal. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that is definitely there. Um, but, um, and uh, Buddhist um, scripture is very speciesist. Um, it, it talks a lot about uh, uh, how how you trap an animal like an elephant or a monkey. That's how, or how you train an animal, um, and that's how you train your mind. Um, and, uh, and 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 they're not, you know, um, they're not vegetarian. Um, so could you maybe ask me the question I'm, in a different way? Is it because you have the impression that they are vegetarian or vegan? No, not necessarily. I just, when you were saying, you know, we shouldn't associate with like Ahimsa or Hinduism or casteism and Buddhism, Buddhism just kind of, I, I was just wondering if you could elaborate on that, but that makes, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. I was wondering, I guess, if Buddhism right. was maybe inherently casteist or, or. Okay. Uh -huh. No, 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 no. So one thing the Buddha was against was caste. Okay. Definitely against caste. And he was also against ritual killing or, 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 or excessive okay. ritual killing. Um, so definitely that's there, but that doesn't, that doesn't make them mm -hmm. vegan or, or particularly animal, mm -hmm. animal rights even not at mm -hmm. all. Yeah. It's not in the right, in the direct, right direction. Right. Right. Okay. I understand. So, but, but to assume that, I mean, I know some people are shocked. I say, you know, Buddhists are not vegan. No, can't be true. No, they're not. Wait, so you mean we're going to have to research more people of color to include in our movement? I thought we could just do it with Buddhism and Hinduism. <laughs> and I do. And, and there are people who, white vegans, who, who are trying to make uh, Buddhism right. vegan. Interesting concept. Yes. Absolutely. Oh, they are. Oh, they absolutely are. Um, why don't you try to make Christianity vegan? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Well, yeah. I feel like that's similar to what you were saying um, about, oh, what's his name, Gary Francione trying to make Jane's vegan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or like explain to them why really, if they understand their philosophy, they should be vegan. Mm -hmm. That just seems mm -hmm. very odd. Like, why don't you focus on your own mm -hmm. people? Odd is a very charitable way of putting it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> or very oppressive. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. So, mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, and uh, yeah, and, and same. Yeah, I, absolutely right. Jainism and Buddhism is, is in that boat right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Jains are tiny. It's not a very big group at all. And neither are Buddhists. So. Right. So, I mean, why would you focus? <laughs> How does it help to make Jains vegan? <laughs> why would you put your effort there? <laughs> yeah. And it's also like, why would it help to popularize the word Ahimsa so much in the vegan movement? I'm it needs to it needs to be talked about <laughs> and uh, yeah and and more more uh, uh, more understanding more discussion Absolutely. and we're not really doing the vegan movement any favors by doing that and not not the global vegan movement which is what we're aiming for right now mm -hmm. because really who is even if the USA uh, starts to eat less mm -hmm. meat which fingers crossed they do where is the meat going to go you know it's going to get exported right uh, this is the uh, the billion um, and a half people in, in india yeah. and all the other people in yeah. china and that's where it's all going to go so it is a global movement you have to consider all types of oppression you know and, and i think casteism and uh, mm -hmm. has been uh, not been given its due it really needs to come out in the open some people don't want obviously they don't want to they're managing impressions they don't want to talk about it but um uh, people who are dalits they want it they want it included in the other discriminations like racism and sexism and LGBTQ issues. They, they want it to be on that list of, of things that are discriminated against. They want it to be drawn attention to in the international platforms. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thank you so much, Rama. Well, thank you, Marin, for that opportunity. I think people are going to really enjoy listening to this. Thank you, Marin. I appreciate it. Bye. Bye-bye.